You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, the podcast of the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. The committee strives to present unbiased information and legal context for the things that you hear in the news. All legal podcasts have disclaimers, and this one is no exception. Our hosts are national security lawyers who are here as individuals and not on behalf of their agencies or firms. During the podcast, you can find links to the Black Letter Law, reports, and articles on today's topics at AmericanBar.org slash NatSecurity and in the notes to this podcast. At the end of the podcast, please drop us a note at nationalsecurity at americanbar.org, on Twitter at ABANATSEC, or on our Facebook page. Today's episode is part two of our conversation with Mika Oyang, the Vice President for Third Way's National Security Program. Mika served as Chief of Staff to Representative Anna Eshoo, as the Defense Policy Advisor to Senator Kennedy, and as Subcommittee Staff Director on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, and as a professional staff member on the House Armed Services Committee. You can go back and listen to part one of our conversation with her on last week's episode, or start part two right now. One of the things that people talk about a lot in the um, erosion of some of those national security norms is that for a period we had many members of Congress who had previously served in the military. And as we've transitioned to an all-volunteer force, far fewer people have actual experience in national security. So, for example, right, Frank Church served as an intelligence mm-hmm. officer, had a much deeper understanding of the intelligence equities. Mike Rogers has served as an FBI agent, right? So he understood those equities. But Nunes has not served in any national security capacity prior to his election as a member of Congress. He was elected very young. And so he doesn't have that context of how this works. But could that, to play devil's advocate, could that, and, and I, I don't mean to support or, or to be in any particular member, but I would say that, could that be refreshing? That you know, Having somebody who doesn't have that experience bring a fresh perspective? And if so, should it be refreshing at that level of leadership on a committee? So I didn't have any national security experience prior to coming to Congress, but I've spent my entire career working with national security in Congress, right? I think the question is one of how much are you willing to listen to the national security establishment, understand what the ways are in which they measure themselves and hold hold them accountable to those measurements and understand what the broader principles are at stake. But I think you can lose your way and focus too much on the politics and lose that national security perspective. I do think that there is something valuable about understanding that national security perspective. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to serve in the military, right? Adam Schiff, who's the ranking Democrat, served as a prosecutor, right? Trey Gowdy had served as a prosecutor on the Republican side. There are people who can understand the purpose of law enforcement and national security without having done that. Chairman Reyes had served in the Border Patrol. There are different ways that people come to this service, but there is this sense when you're serving on national security committees, you need to understand that perspective and respect it and value it. Otherwise, you can lose your way here if you're just focused on the political end. So you're saying it's an interesting age cohort issue because our founding member of our committee was a guy named uh, Powell, who was chairman of the ABA, then became Justice Powell. I don't think many people know he actually was a part of military intelligence in World War II and worked on the ultra-secret. And we now have, for the first time in the Supreme Court, 
we do not have a member on the court who actually was a full-time member of the military at some point in their career. It's part of this extraordinary cohort that you're, yeah. putting, your hand, that you're putting your finger on. And we're seeing some institutional consequences. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I think you... Well, one could argue mm -hmm. that the court previously was too deferential to the national security communities, right, with some of the state secrets, right, doctrines that they put out there, and, right, Korematsu, and some of these other cases where they they perhaps should have been more skeptical than they were. Mm. Um, so, right, this balance can mm. be healthy. The question is, how far do you go, and what are the principles that, that you think about? I would note, too, to your point about, you know, at least you'd, you would like to believe that someone had taken an interest in intelligence activities prior to uh, serving in that capacity. Um, but to your point about the judges and who's doing that, the courts have held um, in the context of cases discussing classified information that it really is a different thing and that a high degree of deference has to be paid to professionals who are accustomed to that kind of thing, understand it well, understand the decisions that are faced by people in the intelligence community on a day-to-day -day basis that differ quite a lot. Let me ask you a question. When you were in at your Senate role, how did you see the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, the FISA Court? What was, your, was that just a parallel, independent decision-making process, or what was the sensibility that you had when you were in your positions on, on that? On so that prior to the revelation of the President's Surveillance Program, I think that there was a sense that it was providing a really important check on the national security function, that the requirement that the government had to get a warrant was a big deal. And not only that, the law is structured in such a way that it requires the, the communications company that's receiving that warrant to stand in the way as gatekeeper, because it put liability on them if they didn't, if the government didn't show them the proper paperwork. So it was sort of, the, they were standing there at the gate and said, I need to see the right ticket before you can look at this, what I have on the other side here. Because if I don't get the ticket, I'm on the hook. And by incentivizing them in a way that they would insist on the government's paperwork, you put an additional check in what was otherwise a secret system. Because both in Operation Shamrock and again later in the present surveillance program, the government went around any kind of court interference to go directly to the companies. And in a national security crisis, the companies are inclined to be patriotic and try and solve the problem for the government. So unless you put something else in there that says to them, you have a reason for not, right? and under Addington and Cheney and the Bush administration, they came up with a rationale to get around that. When you talk about the present surveillance program, you're referring to what was revealed by Snowden? So Snowden, sort of. Snowden talked about the two most controversial programs talked about by Snowden. One was 215, which was a bulk surveillance program in the U.S. Um, and then the other is Section 702. 702 was the legislative authorization for a program that had come earlier, called, which is what I'm re referring to, which was a non-statutorily based attempt to get communications directly from providers. So it's, it's quite interesting because, as you point out, that under the Shamrock program, mm -hmm. uh, the authority resided with the Attorney General. Right. So uh, Bobby Kennedy's signature is actually affixed to all of those requests vis-a-vis -vis <laughs> the issues concerning uh, Martin Luther King. 
but he was the attorney general. And then the theory was we were going to have a court there, and that was one of the, as, not just the attorney general's authority for foreign intelligence. And this issue of, as you know, it became quite controversial as whether the court's interpretation on what was appropriate vis-a-vis the warrants that they were given. And now we've had a number of reforms. Mm-hmm. And I guess the question is, from where you sit, are you happy with the reforms, or would you think that there should be more oversight, either through the sissy and hipsy reviewing things, or that it's sufficient what we have now with the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court, who have very dedicated judges who are working, you know, in a very tough sort of area trying to resolve these issues. So, uh, you know, I, I feel somewhat responsible because while I was on the committee staff... <laughs> so we can blame well, you? I was on the team of, of, um, of lawyers who drafted 702 and right. did the oversight of it. Um, and I think that we thought about that statute strictly from the perspective of what the intelligence agencies mm-hmm. need and what's the appropriate amount of oversight for intelligence agencies who are looking at foreign threats. And from that perspective, this authority, Congress did a really good job of putting more checks on this program than you have on any other intelligence program that looks at foreign targets. The problem is that it's a huge amount of data, and those foreign targets are in touch with people in the United States. And so when it comes to looking at the U.S. end, we didn't think as carefully about what that meant. And that so is in point of clarification, pardon me for interrupting, in point of clarification, yeah. just for our uninitiated listeners, the 702 that you drafted, which was really important, dealt with foreign-to-foreign communications. And the idea being that you would pick up two people talking to each other who are elsewhere. However, it is the reality of, of our planet and the way society functions now that they would necessarily also likely be in contact with individuals here. So... It wasn't specifically that we knew where both ends of the communication were going to be when we wrote it. We knew that the target, the person that you were interested in, was a forum, right? That person, the concern is that that person, if they were in touch with people in the United States, like that's the great fear that led to 9-11, right? That somebody could be working on a plot here. And so people, so we knew that we would be collecting communications that where one end was foreign. And so we explicitly talked about that as we were drafting a statute. And we only thought about the foreign end, and we thought that the current protections that the intelligence community has on minimization were sufficient. But the challenge is, when you start thinking about that U.S. end, not that all the communications terminate this way, but that there were some of them, we didn't think about how what that meant in the context of the Fourth Amendment and in the context of law enforcement, which is operating here. We're the Intelligence Committee. It wasn't really our job. That's the Judiciary Committee's job. They think about that stuff all the time. But we were not as welcoming to them, I think, as we could have been in resolving that series of questions. And so I think that's why in this last cycle, the debate really focused on what do we do about the U.S. end and the U.S. people who are incidentally collected, meaning they happen to be in communication with a foreigner, but they themselves are not the target. Um, What does that mean, right? Like, say some foreigner in Afghanistan decides to order a book on Amazon, right? Like, what does that mean for the Amazon end of that? Or whatever, whatever their sort of communication is. Um, The bigger concern is, of course, if they're in touch with somebody who is radicalizing inside the United States. What does that mean when we start looking at that U.S. end? And I, I don't know what the right answer is on that, but I think that that's where the focus of the debate is. And I think I'm not confident that the answer that we came up with in this last cycle is the right answer. I just think that the capacity to really use this tool to focus on Americans still remains a quite 
grave danger to civil liberties. So it's interesting because you, you raise something that I don't think people fully grasp, which is that there's Hipsy and Sissy's jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the Judiciary Committee. Yes. And how you guys were working with the Judiciary Committee. And there's also the Hask and the Sask that also has the House and uh, Armed Services and the Senate Armed Services Committee also have intelligence functions. So can you, yeah. uh, in your period of time, how was <laughs> that pie carved up and did you enjoy the piece you got or thought it should have been <laughs> so it's, a it's, little bit bigger? You know, it's actually really complicated because most <laughs> national security agencies have an intelligence function. And you hear the intelligence agencies complaining all the time, oh, we have to report to 16 different agencies. But that's because intelligence is not a standalone function. It is an enabling function of other missions that belong in other jurisdictions. So there's a lot of shared jurisdiction there. The Intelligence Committee's jurisdiction is really supposed to be over the sources and methods, right? How are we collecting the intelligence? What's the really the most sensitive stuff? Um, and because of these overlapping jurisdictions, the Intelligence Committee throws a lot of elbows to try and keep other people out of what they think is their business. And because of that concern, <laughs> that for, the, right, because of that concern for the sensitivity. Um, the House Intelligence Committee shares jurisdiction of military intelligence programs with the House Armed Services Committee. The Senate Intelligence Committee does not share jurisdiction of the military intelligence programs with the Senate Armed Services Committee, which has much broader jurisdiction, though the Senate Intelligence Committee also gets nominations, so that, that helps them. Um, so there is this sort of split jurisdiction, and then there are the appropriators who have jurisdiction over all of it because they're the money guys. Um, so you have these sort of shared and overlapping, um, challenges where you have to coordinate. So like on the house intelligence committee, you might think, oh, it's a great idea if, you know, say you have a hypothetical intelligence program in Wakanda, right? Um, and then the appropriators are like, no, we don't need to be spying on Wakanda. That's like not a real thing. And they don't fund it. And then so you have this like, (laughs) right, tension, these are obviously hypothetical because I'm not discussing real <laughs> intelligence programs on this podcast. Um, but you have this tension between the two committees um, as yeah. to what what we should actually be doing. And so, right, the intelligence committees have to negotiate with a lot of other committees um, for reasons that are sort of unique to the way intelligence functions in the world. So for all those people who think we should have a Department of Intelligence and the intelligence agency should just report to at most four committees, meaning their authorizers and their appropriators, it's never going to happen. Because there's a state intelligence function, there's an FBI intelligence function, right? There's a treasury intelligence function. And the people who authorize the main functions of those agencies also have a stake in how those agencies understand the information that they get. And so you just are never going to get around it. And people should just get used to having to report to a lot of different agencies. We appreciate your sense of optimism. <laughs> oh, yeah. It sounds like, you know, what did Charlton Heston say at the end of Planet of the Apes? It's madness, madness. <laughs> it's, there's a method to it, the madness, though. It's, it is for a reason. Because mm-hmm. if you don't have the intelligence to understand, uh, to support the actual operational function, then the operational function right, is not working well. And so... That's the thing that really matters. Intelligence is a support function. It's not an agent. It's not an end in itself. But it's interesting when you hear those sound bites on the news. It all sounds so simple. Just do X. Just do this. Just do that, and everything will be perfect. It's not quite that way. It sounds like a big um, family reunion where you have to explain how everyone's going to behave in advance, 
and then watch them behave as has been explained. Yes, but like a family reunion, you all remain related and have to continue dealing with each other forever, no matter how annoying it is. That's a that's a very see there you go sounding yes. a note of optimism. Yes, well, we we talked you. extensively about the legal authority, but I mean clearly, Mika, it all sounds very ad hoc. Might be a good word for it. What is the actual legal authority of of each committee? So we talked a little bit about what the legal authorities are in terms of the what the military intelligence programs are and the jurisdiction of them. Um, there's sort of what we call national intelligence programs and military intelligence programs. Uh, sort of explaining what that is is actually difficult even for the practitioners, like sort of where that line gets drawn. And this is actually one of the real challenges in intelligence reform is sort of understanding where those lines are. Um, the legal authority for congressional oversight, right, comes generally from Article One of the Constitution. And the national security function in that is Article One, Section 9, which talks about Congress's power um, to declare wars, right, and to fund the army and the Navy. Intelligence was not mentioned as a separate function then, but even George Washington had spies, and that was part of the national security establishment. <laughs> um, so it is subsumed into those authorities. Statutorily, right, their existence of the committees is reflected in the rules of both the two chambers, and their jurisdictions are outlined in the rules. Um, but the committees themselves are supposed to focus on sources and methods. There is an interesting question, though, about the committee's authority when it comes to classified information. Um, because classified information is an executive branch regulation, and classified information is set by the President of the United States, but members of Congress, in part because of the speech and debate clause, um, but in part because of the virtue of their independent branch, have a very different relationship to classified information than executive branch people do. This has gotten some former members of Congress in trouble um, as they've transitioned to the executive branch. Perhaps um, the Senate staff of Hillary Clinton may have not learned the best information security practices consistent with normal executive branch practice. Um, But that's because Congress's role here is very different. Members of Congress never fill out an SF-86. They don't have to apply for security clearance. They're granted those clearances as a result of their election by the people of their various jurisdictions. Um, The staff of the committees fill out an SF-86, but the obligation to secure the information runs to the Congress, not to the executive branch. You sign your non-disclosure agreement with the Congress. Um, And there is a sense that though the executive has tried, it seems to me that it is impermissible interference with the legislative branch function for the executive branch to tell a member of Congress what they can and can't share with their staff if the member chooses not to abide by that. Members have largely, and to their detriment, followed the recommendations of the executive branch on securing information. Uh, But constitutionally speaking, they wouldn't have to. And if they were to read that information out loud on the floor of the chamber, in either chamber... There is no criminal penalty for revealing that information. And also, uh, staff members are normally not polygraphed. That's correct. Whereas many people in the community have always found that fascinating yeah. because of the, the independent branch versus the polygraphs that many people in the community have to have. Yeah, we had members of the committee who were very much opposed to the polygraph on its science, right? The number of... Well, it's never been admitted, Um in court, right? Right. I mean, I think, you know, 
there are people who argue that you could get the same information out of an adversarial interview, and the polygraph has been largely unsuccessful in catching actual spies. Um, it catches people of good conscience who are who are afraid enough of it to admit to things, um, even things that are against interest. Um, and so I think Congress's, many members of Congress's view is that it's not actually useful. It's really expensive. Um, and, you know, th- I think there's a real sense that a polygrapher can um, manipulate the interview in such a way as to admit or fail whoever they like. And members of Congress, I think, feel very strongly about their right to pick their own people. We used, we used to say when I was in the group, it's an investigative tool. That's how we see it. Well, and in Alder James defeated it, did he not? Because he was asked if he'd ever been pitched by a foreign government. But as we say, Ames was the polygrapher were CIA polygraphers and not FBI polygraphers. Oh, and I see. Well, he, FBI, he's the answer. And, but as it goes to your issue, yeah. that it becomes more of an art than Hansen, a science. Hansen, right? Hansen, Hansen, Ames. And like, it turned out Ames yeah. had pitched yeah. them. So his yes. answer was actually like the literal truth defense. Yes. Yeah, I mean, he had not, in fact, been pitched by them. He had pitched yeah, them. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yes. I mean, it's just sort of the, the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you add up how much money we're spending on polygraph, especially given how much money you can, or sorry, how much information you have on people today, we might want to rethink how we do counterintelligence investigations and well, whether or not that's mm-hmm. a, a wise use of funds and, or an effective way of getting the right people into the community. Right? Sociopaths pass the polygraph, no problem. Absolutely, but there is a role for sociopaths in the community. Yes. But I think in support of that notion, uh, I don't believe that uh, district court judges are cleared by virtue of all the vetting they've undergone, uh, but they're not polygraphed either. So another branch of government, Mm -hmm. it's only the executive branch uh, that is actually subjected to that and not all executive branch agencies. So that's an interesting point. Yes. Yes. All right, so I guess the question is, given where we're living in a highly partisan-charged time, and I wonder if there's some way uh, to make the review by these oversight committees somehow less biased and less partisan. Yeah, I think it's a real challenge right now because I, th- I think that the partisan makeup of the chambers reflects the ways in which America is divided. So mm-hmm. to the extent that we're reflecting back our actual populace, this is what the American people want. If they don't want this kind of partisanship, they have the opportunity to change that in November. And they have the opportunity to pick people who are less likely to do this. It's very clear who's being partisan and who's not. Um, It's a real shame that some of the more bipartisan members have announced that they are not seeking re-election. But if the American people want to change this, they have the opportunity to do so. Um, It has been suggested in a number of intelligence issues that we kick it over to an independent commission, like the 9-11 commission. Um, But I think that there's a real question about whether or not that would even be functional. I think the 9-11 commission was the exception and not the rule um, to high-quality commissions providing recommendations and look-backs at things that are useful. Um, But I think that that also reflects that America had consensus about what 9-11 meant and what we wanted to do to protect ourselves, when many of the other issues that we deal with in national security, we do not have that consensus about what we should be doing or what the outcome should be. And in those places where there are real disputes, I think it's hard for 
any committee, independently appointed commission, or even executive branch review to put something out that is really nonpartisan and, and consensus driven because we are in the middle of a real fight right now in our nation about the way America should approach its security. And some would say that division is in and of itself a threat to our national security. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. The piece is called How the Intel Committee Broke Bad. You can find it on politico.com and in the notes to this podcast. And you can find out more about Mika and Third Way on our website and in the notes to this podcast. We plucked from Mika's oeuvre. We've added some other articles that you'll find interesting as well as the text of the Church and Pike uh, committees that started this entire oversight process. We're very glad to have had you today. Thanks so much for coming, and we hope we get a chance to talk to you again soon. Thank you for having me. This was fun. And thanks for listening to the podcast of the Standing Committee on Law and National Security. Tune in again soon for our next episode. So right now, if you're out there thinking about how much you want to practice law in a skiff, where you will never get the recommended daily dose of vitamin D. And I guess I think what our careers have demonstrated that if you want a front row seat to history making, it's hard to find a better area than national security, national security law. And I'll just end with uh, um, in Article 1, Section 5 of our Constitution. Uh, as you know, it says, um, each house shall be the judge of the election returns and qualifications of uh, its own members, but that each house shall keep a journal, section three, of its proceedings and from time to time publish the same, except such parts as may in their judgment require secrecy. And so ironically, secrecy is mentioned in the Constitution, but not privacy. <laughs> and one of the great ironies of the founders. They were coming out of a war. And they, I remember they were, they were conspired. That's right. They were the targets. They were exactly. They were on both sides of the issue, (laughs) and they were leading a populist wave. Were they not? Of tax protesters and arguably religious extremists. (laughs) (laughs) All right, then join us again next time for National Security Law Today, brought to you by the American Bar Association's Standing Committee on Law and National Security. But let me just say, for you millennials out there, social networking, it's not really networking. You have to show up. So join us at one of our breakfast, lunch programs. You really should come in. And check us out on AmericanBar.org forward slash NatSecurity or follow us on Twitter at ABA NatSec. From all of us here, thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association and accordingly should not be construed as representing ABA policy.